This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter promo code fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm really happy this week to be joined by a special guest. Ever heard of Zach Cantor? No? Well, I think this week's podcast interview with him will persuade you that you should have, and you might in future. With this Boulder, Colorado-based entrepreneur and future thinker, we're going to touch on autonomous cars, online news, and Amazon, among other topics. These are big, well-discussed subjects, but here with some fresh and really intelligent perspective. I found Zach on Twitter as someone worthy of a follow, but with this interview, I can now call him a friend, a friend of the fool. So join us, stay a while, and listen. Zach Kanner is an entrepreneur based in Boulder, Colorado. He's presently the founder of his startup, Steady.com. That's S-T-E-D-I. After having previously started one company that he's still overseeing a little bit, he has his own blog at ZachCantor.com. That's K-A-N-T-E-R. And he's impressed me with his independent thinking and foresight, his focus on the future. And yes, I do believe maybe a rule breaker at heart, but I'll let him say, Zach, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Zach, you know, I think you first came to my attention with your blog post. It was two and a half years ago. It was entitled, How Uber's Autonomous Cars Will Destroy 10 Million Jobs and Reshape the Economy by 2025. End quote. You were deeply thinking through the implications of autonomous vehicles. And it's not just the saved lives and the productivity gains for individuals, but it's many fewer vehicles, you were saying. Many fewer vehicles necessary, lower car sales, dramatically reduced urban parking needs, the potential disruption of auto insurance, the list goes on. Thank you for that. Zach, would you like to start there? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think in 2017, where we sit today, many of the thinking around autonomous cars has advanced a lot than where it was two and a half years ago. Um, so I think many people, at least in the in the tech circles that I'm in, take autonomous cars as an inevitable future in the in the you know foreseeable near term. Um, but back in in 2015 or 2014 when I wrote that, um, I think it was it was less of a consensus view. Um, so yeah, the the general idea is that you don't need to rely on people purchasing these hundred plus thousand dollar autonomous cars, which are going to be quite expensive when they first come out due to the the uh, cost of all the sensing technology and everything, what you need is people to be able to be willing to do on-demand autonomous ride-sharing. So, an example of that would be, uh, you know, uh, two years ago, would have, I would have said Uber. Today, maybe Lyft or another company like Tesla um, operating these fleets of autonomous cars. And instead of me having to buy this car for $100,000, I'm buying a ride from, you know, Manhattan to Brooklyn for, for $2.50 and because, uh, and, you know, there is no cost of, of, of driving labor. Mm-hmm. And Zach, do you do you still think we're kind of on track with the same time frame, 2025, that you had in mind two and a half years ago? Yeah, well, it depends on. I think the answer, and one thing I've been thinking about there is, is it depends on on where you're located. I mean, if you're you're located in um, in rural Alabama, it's probably not going to be 2025. But in places that have a reasonably high density, um, you know, 80 percent of uh, of U.S. population lives in a major metro- metropolitan area. So when you're talking about somewhere like uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, um, I think by 2025 there's going to be very few people uh, driving in uh, in human-driven cars. 
and I'd like you to ignite a little fear on this podcast briefly. So, pretend that I'm either Geico or Ford. What do you have to say to me about 2025? Ooh, okay. So, uh, I don't want to offend any uh, Geico or, or Ford owners here, but I guess I, uh, I'm about to. Um, when it comes to insurance, you know, the, the whole market is predicated upon the fact that a, a human is a fallible driver. You know, 90% of accidents uh, that happen are due to human error. And, and when you um, build an autonomous car, you know, the common um, the fallacy that people have is that an autonomous car needs to be perfect in order for, for it to replace human drivers. It actually just needs to be better than a human driver, and it turns out that's not actually that difficult. Um, so when you have an autonomous car, you know, the, the number of crashes goes down dramatically. And the other interesting piece is, is, is uh, you know, the whole question of what happens if an autonomous car does get in an accident, who is liable? Because uh, there is no driver driving, so you know, is it is it the person who who you know made the car? Is the person who operated the vehicle? Is it the person who owns the vehicle? Um, and it turns out that that companies like Volvo, who are building these autonomous cars, have all stepped up and said, "Look, we're going to um, take on the liability of any unlikely crash that happens." So when I look at a company like Geico, I mean, I think uh, you know, there's there's probably a, a number of, of, of good years left in the business. But as we get to these cities starting to be predominantly operated by uh, or, or serviced by uh, autonomous vehicles, I think the the bottom really drops out of the auto insurance market pretty quickly. When it comes to Ford, the challenge that someone like Ford has, and, and Ford's a great example because they're actually one of the more forward-thinking um, uh, you know companies when it comes to uh, the, the impending autonomous and electric car uh, mm-hmm. uh, wave that's going to hit us. But when you look at at uh, Ford. The challenge they have is that an autonomous car is not a mechanical problem. You know, there's there's very few moving parts in an electric vehicle. Um, uh, the, the the problem that they're looking at is a software problem, and it really comes down to you know a pretty well known or or well accepted idea in the tech industry, which is that the most um, productive, the most brilliant software engineer might have a thousand times the value output. Of, of a standard software engineer. And if you're a top tier, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, which is, which is uh, you know, the, the types of fields that are, are necessary for, for building autonomous car software, you're not going to work for Ford. And a big part of that is not that Ford isn't willing to pay the money. It's that the, the important thing for a person like that is working with the smartest possible people. And I'm sure there are a lot of smart people at Ford, um, but in terms of software development, it pales in comparison to working at a company like Tesla, working at a company like Uber or Google, where you're surrounded by you know the smartest minds in the world in terms of, of machine mm. learning. So, so I think that the chance, you know, I think even though Ford sees the future, the likelihood that they're going to be able to compete in this talent war and, and really the talent builds the product. Uh, is, is exceedingly low. So I am hugely bearish on all the, the, the publicly traded automakers, uh, with the exception of Tesla, where even there, I think it is, it's, it's, not a, you know, it's not a guarantee that they're going to be the, the Apple of cars, um, but I think they have probably the best shot of any of the, the public companies at present. Now, another thing I remember from that blog post, you were talking not just about how all the best engineers might not be going to these companies, but manufacturers themselves might not be selling nearly as many cars because we may not just not need such a large fleet on the highway, given that a lot of our cars, mine certainly, might just sit in, in a driveway or garage a lot of the time. So, do the math a little bit for our listeners there, Zach. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, an interesting point because when you look at a car as opposed to uh, a house, you know, a car is usually the second most expensive uh, asset that somebody is ever going to buy. And a house, you're utilizing, what, eight or 10 hours a day, so it's like a 33% um, asset utilization rate. When you look at a vehicle, it sits unoccupied, um, you know, in a parking lot or in a garage, something like 93% of the day. So uh, you're talking about an asset that's just sitting there doing nothing. And so I think what, what we're looking at in terms of, uh, of a future with vehicles is approaching 100% utilization rate of, of vehicles. So you can imagine a vehicle that's currently operated by someone who's driving for Uber or Lyft um, is being utilized far more than, than my car is, which is you know, currently sitting, uh, sitting outside the office in, in a parking spot. And, um, you know, as we start to utilize vehicles more and more, it means that the number of vehicles uh, need to, that need to be produced uh, dramatically goes down. So when you look at a car that's going to be operated by, by someone like an Uber, um, you know, it's, it's going to be constantly in rotation except for, uh, for the possibility of charging or, or refueling, which I think is likely to happen, um, you know, sort of on the fly with these hot swapping battery stations as opposed to being sitting, you know, on a charger for, for eight or nine hours in order to, to refuel. And Zach, let me ask you a little bit about the idea that we will be kind of renting or just sitting like we are in an Uber or someone else's car that we don't own. And what goes through my mind is my recollection of a bad experience I once had with Zipcar, where I rented the car. I didn't rent the car, I was part of the club. I, I picked up the car that I tapped online that I was going to drive. And when I got there, and it was going to be for a longest trip taking other people, somebody had not exactly cleaned up the snack food on the back on the floor of the back seat. And I think about the phrase the tragedy of the commons, where there might not be that much incentive to keep a car that you or I don't own, especially if it's just being autonomously driven, clean. Do you think that people who have appreciated owning a car and keep making their car smell good and look nice, might they be a little bit bereft in an all autonomous fleet world? I think what you're touching on is is a bit of an imperfect market. So when you talk about Zipcar, there aren't there are not that many people using it in terms of you know I'm sure in terms of an absolute number there are a lot of people, but in terms of a, a percentage there are not that many people who are doing this. And so you know you see people um, a relatively low number of cars involved in this and a relatively low number of transactions. Now you can imagine, you know, people often are, are thinking in terms of the current model of Uber or Lyft, where you're standing on the street corner in Manhattan, um, you press a, a button on your on your phone in order for uh, Uber to schedule the ride and come pick you up. I don't think that's the future when it comes to autonomous vehicles. I think we're actually um, in a sort of temporary period uh, in between a taxi, which is actually very convenient. You just pick any taxi you want. You walk up to the vehicle, you open the door, and you get inside. You tell the driver where you want to go. In the future, when we have you know tens of thousands of autonomous cars in Manhattan, and they're driving all you know around everywhere, uh, and and instead of having to figure out which Uber is yours, you just walk up to any one of these vehicles, which is maybe queued up on the on the sidewalk somewhere. Uh, you you jump into the vehicle and you now scan some sort of a Q, QR code or you use uh, an NFC chip 
in order to uh, to check in to the vehicle, and then it, it sort of brings you to your destination. So in terms of the sort of circumstance that you're talking about, I think the likely thing is you open up the door, and it turns out that, uh, you know, the person who was in it before you was uh, was drunk and had, uh, you know, made a mess and spilled french fries or, or worse all over the place. <laughs> uh, you simply close the door and, and, you know, press some sort of a button that, that cues the vehicle for cleaning, and you jump into the next vehicle in line. So I really, I mean, tragedy of the commons aside, I just don't see it being uh, being a huge problem. I think that that inevitably uh, there's there's pretty easy ways to solve these problems. Really good point about once the utilization or the market is mature, it's a different world. Thank you. And before we shift topics, are you still impressed by Uber? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's one of those companies where you ask, I mean, how many. How many problems or mistakes can a company uh, go through in a short period of time and, and still recover and come out on top? I mean, it's it's the question of is this the momentary dip uh, before the end of the happily ever after story, um, or or is, have they given enough uh, enough ground for uh, for someone like a Lyft to uh, to gain traction? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's certainly a, a worrisome trend there. I think three years ago I would have told you. Um, you know, there's they're the indisputable leader in terms of ride sharing, and they're the likely winner in the autonomous future. Um, and you know, that's a, a good lesson for me, and that it's way easier to predict uh, where the trends are growing, going than than who the winners are going to be. Mm. So that's a, a sort of a diplomatic answer, but uh, I, I, I'm not as confident as I used to be. Okay, Zach, I want to pause you there because this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper is made with supportive memory foam for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Now, a bunch of fools have Casper mattresses and love them. You can buy it easily online. It's completely risk-free because Casper offers free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day Period. That's right. 100 days, so you don't have to lie down in a showroom. Casper's mattresses are made in the USA. You can save an additional $50 toward a mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash fool and entering the promo code fool. That's casper.com slash fool and promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. Well, Zach, I follow you on Twitter. I'm pretty sure you're... Are you at Zach Cantor on Twitter? Yes, uh, Z-A-C-K-K-A-N-T-E-R. So, you're a fine follow, and I think I recall a great tweet from you that got a retweet from me saying, in so many words, you wish there were an online news site somewhere where you could filter the stories and only see ones that affect a great deal of people. In other words, it would filter out all the stories that tend to grab the headlines, like well, let's just take today's story of someone, some crazy guy who attacked a Parisian officer with a hammer. Um, am I right that that was your tweet? And maybe give us more than 140 characters on this. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those those things that if I had all the time in the world and parallel universes, um, I think those would be one of that would be one of the companies that I would want to build. Um, when you look at the news, you know, even a, a relatively um, decent news aggregator like uh, like a Google News. You go to it, and the vast majority of the stories are about things that that only affect a certain very small subset of people. So, you know, the 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 you know hammer attack in in Paris, like you could maybe uh, 
maybe say that that affects many thousands of people because it has, uh, you know, terrorism implications. But how about, you know, man, you know, shoot, gets in an argument with his uh, with his wife and, uh, and and shoots her and the family. I mean, that's the type of thing that um, that I think there's there's a horrible effects of being exposed to that. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure there's people who could argue the other way, but but it, it, in my sort of uh, area of interest in news, I would love to see the, the things that are not gossip related, uh, not violence related, uh, unless they're really truly on a, on a national or global scale and are going to be relevant. You know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and when I was, and I'm 51, when I was about 17, regularly on the nightly news, there would be, as still there is on the nightly news in so many cities, um, the lead story would be somebody was shot in the city. And it happened enough back then in the late 1970s, early 1980s, that Washington was called the, quote, murder capital of the world, end quote. Over the last 30 years, I have watched the same kind of reporting on the nightly news, but what a lot of my fellow Washingtonians may not recognize, but the facts are very clear, is that there are about one-fifth the number of homicides today, this year, in Washington, D.C., than there were 30 years ago. Literally, violent crime down 70 to 80 percent. But it's hard to understand that or get that sense or realize that, darn it, we're much safer walking around the streets of this city. And this is not a Washington story. This is a, a nationwide story. And, and you're right. I think it would be great if there were that. Is there a site? Is there that site somewhere on the internet that you found that is a great news aggregator with Good filters. Well, you know, you're touching on on the idea of the availability heuristic and the recency bias, and you know, it, you know, directly after somebody drives a car into a, a crowd of people, if you were to ask somebody what's the likelihood of getting uh, run over by a, a terrorist, they're going to dramatically overestimate the the possibility that's going to happen. Um, and for you know, I, I think about that in terms of investing all the time. Um, so, so I'm sort of at the other end of the spectrum, which is because I'm highly exposed to the tech industry. I, I generally dramatically um, overestimate how quickly uh, technological change is going to happen, and that's because I'm in an industry that moves quickly, that adopts things quickly. And so, for me, it's easy to forget about the you know the sort of long tail of the adoption curve, and and I fall prey to that all the time. Um, so, I think you know when it comes to uh, to investing, uh, and then when it comes to, to to various news sites, I think there's some very good sites in terms of um, viewing uh, sort of news that that doesn't affect uh, that doesn't have all this uh, riffraff in it of all of all the stuff that doesn't affect a huge amount of people. But as for but it's, it's really in a specific vertical. So I could name a few for technology. You know, maybe I could name a few for for automotive. I could name a few for specifically for software. I'm sure you could name some for for investing. Uh, but when it comes to a broad-based news site, I can't really think of one that that filters out the the sort of unimportant news or or you know not world-changing news uh, in in an efficient way. Um, I you know it just reminds me of uh, of, a, of a tweet I saw recently thinking about Twitter. It was I believe it was Naval Naval Ravikant, who's the founder of uh, AngelList. He said the news is a is a, a dish best served old. And I very much agree with that. I mean, I think that that listening to breaking news, whether it's uh, on the radio or or TV or reading, uh, you know, the news on a daily basis, is generally not going to be helpful. Uh, your best bet is to wait, you know, a couple weeks for a story to develop, and and you miss a lot of this uh, time wasting of of misdirection. Mm. So well put. A rule breaker thought. You may not start it. I'm not going to start it. But somebody could start that site. And I know one thing. 
I know your first two users, future entrepreneur, whoever you are. Um, Zach, in 2011, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen famously wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, Why Software is Eating the World. In so many words, he predicted that things like apps in our iPhones would render hardware like, I don't know, what GPS devices or heck, even just wallets irrelevant. So, software is cheaper, more upgradable and tweakable, ubiquitous, and just flat out more profitable than slow and clunky hardware solutions. This past month, you wrote an article in TechCrunch with a highly elusive headline, quote, why Amazon is eating the world, end quote. So, let's start, Zach, with not why, let's start with how. You know, from sitting in and following Amazon um, for some time, you know, my first business was an auto parts business, and I had Amazon as a customer from a number of different ways, both as what they call a vendor, where Amazon is cutting purchase orders to the auto parts business and the, the business is shipping product in bulk to Amazon's warehouses, um, and also through their marketplace program, where any third party can sign up and, and sell products alongside, uh, alongside Amazon. Um, so, so having been involved in sort of those two programs and and using Amazon's web services, which have gotten a lot of uh, headlines in terms of their 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 servers for rent, basically, I was astonished at the pace of of uh, innovation. And it's similar to you know you look you think about Mark Andreessen's how how software is eating the world article. You see software moving at such an unbelievable pace. You have to understand that there's some sort of a market force behind it. This is not just you know one person's. Uh, will. And when I think about Amazon, I get a similar feeling. So you look at Amazon from the outside, the sheer number of, of programs that they have in terms of uh, commercial successes like Amazon Web Services, like Amazon Marketplace, Fulfillment by Amazon, um, Amazon, Amazon Go, their, their, their uh, bookstores and their cashier-free retail locations, and, and all of these different programs they have, you get the impression that it's a, it's a market at work. It's not just, uh, just the will of Jeff Bezos sort of uh, sitting in a room and coming up with all these genius programs. So the idea behind this post that I wrote is that um, the, the things that make Amazon very difficult to innovate against is not their broad advantages like Amazon Prime or one-hour delivery or their drone program or any one of these you know, individual things that they have going on. It's the fundamental structure of how they've built the business. And in software, um, we, we have something called the service-oriented architecture, where you're basically opening up all of your services to be consumed by outside developers. And that's what Amazon's done from a business standpoint. So what they've done is successively opened up every single piece of the business into a separate platform, which opens it up to outside competition. Um, and, and, you know, I'm happy to, to chat a little bit more on that because I know it's sort of an abstract idea. But when you think about um, something like Amazon Web Services, which is Amazon's uh, first foray into this sort of service-oriented architecture, is, you know, when they were hyperscaling back in the early 2000s, uh, these type of enterprise-class data centers were not widely available. So what Amazon did was they built out their own technology infrastructure, and they realized when they turned on a new data center, you know, they had maybe um, a third of it was, was extra capacity that they weren't going to need for the next couple of years. So they figured they would open up a platform and sell that, um, you know, external, that, that um, additional, additional capacity to external developers. Mm -hmm. And it turned into a huge business. I mean, it turned into something as a $14 billion revenue annual run rate, which is bigger than, you know, many <laughs> of the, the current software companies that are out there. Um, 
but the, the sort of revenue bonanza that's come from this is, is a footnote compared to the, the organizational insight that Amazon discovered. And that's that by carving out um, you know, each piece of the company as a, as a separate platform, they could future-proof themselves against inefficiency and stagnation because now all of a sudden they have uh, customers for all of their internal systems, and they can't just sit there and, and let it stagnate. Hmm. Really great insight. Zach, what was your experience working as, in effect, a partner or a supplier, it sounds like, or with Amazon? What did you learn from that? You know, when I think about a company like, like Apple, um, Apple has had, what, a dozen hit products in, in, their, uh, in, their, in their run over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, of, of course, as long as you don't count each iPhone as a successive hit product, um, you know, each one of these categories has, uh, has been a hit for them. And you look at Amazon, and they've done that you know, almost in order of magnitude uh, higher. They have dozens and dozens of products that are commercial successes. And, um, and I think it takes uh, you know, a company that's, that's very willing to make mistakes and also uh, that's, that's willing to do things that many other companies are, are not willing to do. You know, I think about uh, they, have, uh, they have a program called Fulfillment by Amazon. And what that is, is, is as, a, as a brand of products, you know, let's say you're making water bottles, you can ship these water bottles to Amazon's warehouse. And Amazon will ship them um, to, you own the inventory, but Amazon will ship them to your customers. So if you're operating a you know, waterbottles.com website and a customer comes and places an order, Amazon will actually ship that to your customer, even though they're not party to the transaction at oh. all. And the interesting thing there is, is it's sort of um, the opposite of what many companies say. They say, hey, look, we have this moat. Um, we have this whole uh, fulfillment network. What we want to do is, is keep it proprietary and not let uh, anybody else have access to it. And Amazon's done the opposite, which is to say, we're going to open up all these pieces of our platform for anybody to use, um, and, and we will learn something from it, we'll profit by it, and we'll own our services uh, by doing so. And, and you look at uh, a competitor to Amazon, someone like a Netflix, because Amazon competes against them head-to-head with Amazon Prime Video. Netflix's entire technology infrastructure runs on Amazon Web Services. Um, which is it's such an it would have been a very odd thing to consider ten or fifteen years ago. Yes, which is, hey, let's enable our competitors, um, but but they're doing it and they're doing it very well. Zach, because you do spend a lot of time thinking about the future, and darn it, we all should. As investors, we benefit immeasurably if we can. We don't have to be right every time, but if we're just thinking, often we're asking the right kinds of questions and avoiding lots of pitfalls. So, as a future-focused guy, do you want to make any predictions about Amazon? I think Amazon is is certainly going to become the world's most valuable company. Um, when you look at what they've done, you know many people think Amazon's overvalued, but when you look at at, at the opportunity that's in front of them, um, one thing that comes to mind is Amazon's rumored to be starting an, an online pharmacy, and they have somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred and fifty thousand employees. So they have this enormous internal test bed of customers. Um, so they could, you know, theoretically spin up a, a pharmacy and have 350,000 uh, uh, employees who are already customers of it when they're ready for launch. Another option would be something like uh, like payroll. So if Amazon wanted to build out their own payroll company as a service, you know, they could go head to head with someone like an ADP fairly easily. Of course, the the ones that are more often talked about is someone like a FedEx or a UPS. 
Um, I think it's it's very inevitable that in the next few years, Amazon is going to get into small parcel shipping. Uh, they are sort of going thumbing through their income statement and picking off the biggest line items uh, in terms of costs. One of those was servers. They turned that into Amazon Web Services. Um, you know, another uh, another of those was was warehousing, and they turned that into to fulfillment by Amazon. So I think that uh, that we'll see Amazon come as a as a head to head competitor with UPS and FedEx in the next few years. And all these things, you know, you just realize. Jeff Bezos always says Amazon's truly on day one, uh, that they still think that they're a startup. They, they still think the amount of revenue that they have before them is, is uh, tremendous in terms of uncaptured revenue. And I think that's true not just from a retail standpoint where, you know, only, what is it, 15% of retail goods are sold online. Mm-hmm. I think that comes to, to, the, to the services uh, area as well. I think there's just a tremendous amount of services that Amazon could still uh, devour and the, the upside is tremendous. Potentially the most valuable company someday. Right now, still two hundred billion dollars behind Google or Alphabet, I should say. Alphabet at about a six hundred eighty billion dollar market cap. Amazon tipping the scales at four eighty. Apple at just over eight hundred billion dollars. I guess probably the world's most valuable public company. So still a lot ahead for Jeff Bezos. And before we totally move away from Amazon, I have to ask you. What about Amazon Prime Air and drones? Are we going to have drones delivering us packages, whether we're in rural Alabama or Boulder, Colorado, and if so, when? Yeah, so I think when it comes to drones, I think we're far more likely to see that happening in rural areas than in urban areas. When you talk about Amazon building out their version of a UPS or FedEx, they're going to go after the densest areas first, which leaves all of these rural areas that need to be serviced um, by a, by a, a FedEx or UPS, and, and that cost is going to be going up because Amazon's overall spend with them is going to be going down. Hmm. So I think the drones are a sort of nice uh, nice option. Um, the technology is, is is getting there. I think there's a, a regulatory um, you know framework that needs to come in in order for there to be the the right airspace in terms of an altitude that they can fly at. Um, but I could certainly see in in ten years or so Amazon utilizing that for some of their rural deliver- deliveries. I mean, I think the chance that if you live in a in a thirty floor uh, apartment building in in Los Angeles, the chance that a drone is going to fly up to your window, I think that that's that's a lot lower. Awesome, Zach. Let's talk briefly about you as an entrepreneur. Um, Steady.com. I mentioned earlier S T E D I, and having clicked over to your site and seeing that it's uh, a beta site right now. I recognize EDI, that part of your study, as the phrase electronic data interchange, which I have to admit, I didn't really know. That didn't come trippingly off the tongue or quickly to mind for me, even though I do like learning about technology and I'm an investor. Um, Can you break that down for us and give our listeners the two-minute elevator pitch that you would want to give a venture capitalist? Sure. So when you look at EDI, EDI is a framework for exchanging everyday business-to-business transactions, like such as purchase orders, invoices, uh, ship notifications between retailers and their suppliers. So as an example, if you're a company like Fitbit and you're doing business with Amazon and Best Buy, the only way to automatically receive purchase orders and send ship notifications and invoices to uh, these retailers is via a framework called EDI. EDI was technology that was developed in the 80s, and so, uh, or it was really popularized in the 80s by Walmart. And so many of the EDI service providers today are, are 15 or 20 years old and, and operate on this, this archaic technology stack that makes it very expensive, uh, very difficult to implement, and very painful to use on an ongoing basis. Hmm. So we're basically building a modern EDI platform 
that allows any one of Amazon or Walmart or Best Buy's tens of thousands of suppliers to automate all the order flow back and forth. Uh, we're making it 90% uh, faster to implement and 50% cheaper to operate on an ongoing basis. That sounds pretty compelling. Paint a picture for us, Zach, about how things used to be in the 70s using, let's say, a fax machine, and then what's happening now in the 2010s. When you look at how things used to work in the 70s, uh, you know, you're exactly right. I think a fax machine was probably a, a, a pretty big competitive advantage back then. Um, people were receiving purchase orders by faxes, maybe even by, uh, by mail. What EDI was, was it was originally developed with this sort of mainframe to mainframe connection that would allow companies to send orders between their, their business systems. So that might be like an SAP or an Oracle or a NetSuite uh, without having to manually key any of these orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and how things work today is, is much the same. Uh, it's, it's the same providers who popularized this stuff in the 80s are the major players now. And they're processing billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of retail transactions uh, on their on their framework. And because of that, uh, they're not really able to make changes on an ongoing basis. It's similar to how the airlines operate on these, you know, archaic data centers and and sort of green screen systems because their whole <laughs> they don't have the time to stop and rebuild things from from the ground up. Mm. Um, so so the difficulty of implementing EDI today. Uh, you know, let's say you're uh, you're a Procter and Gamble, and and all of a sudden you start uh, you know onboarding a new retailer like uh, like Amazon. The difficulty of implementing EDI it could take um, you know 12 months for an implementation. It can cost a huge amount of money, and it can still involve a lot of manual entry. So you wouldn't believe the scale of companies that we talk to who are still have people full-time hand-keying orders and tracking numbers in all day long. Mm. And so the dream of what we're doing is uh, is eliminating all of that time-intensive, capital-intensive, and error-prone uh, entry of orders and entry of tracking numbers and, and invoices in order to uh, free up companies to spend their capital on, on things that are going to generate money instead of just uh, burning money on their income statement. And so the future is computers just talking to each other with pre-agreed templated versions of invoices and things and just exchanging information, whereas still today we have people just sitting there having to read an email and having to process an order and send it off another email or um, yeah, still type out a piece of paper. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly right. And I would say, it's funny to say, but I would say the future um, that w- which Steady is trying to bring is probably what your current listeners imagine as the present being. You know, nobody imagines that Procter and Gamble hand keys their orders, but it still happens. Uh, so we're, you know, they say that the the future is is already here; it's just not evenly distributed, as the famous <laughs> William Gibson quote. And uh, and we're basically trying to uh, uh, evenly distribute that future today. And then obviously we have uh, a, a huge roadmap for for innovating on top of that uh, a few years down the line. Really well put. All right, let's close it out with one or two questions about the future. Uh, let me ask you, Zach, are you an optimist? Yes, I'm certainly an optimist. I think that we're living in the most exciting time in the history of the world. I think there's more opportunity today. I think it's it's easier to uh, to start a company today and be successful today than it ever has been. Um, I, I am not very optimistic about most of the, the publicly traded companies that are out there, um, but I'm, I'm hugely bullish on the startup world uh, in general. And, and are you a stock market investor? Do you ever pick a stock? Yes, although I'm uh, generally more likely to be short than long, um, I think it's it's way more difficult, at least 
from from the position that I sit in uh, to to predict who's going to be the future in the automotive industry, as opposed to uh, you know predicting who who is not going to be in the future. Hmm. Um, so I am I'm short a number of stocks and have done pretty well there, um, and I'm I'm long Amazon and Tesla. Wow, and uh, what about Twitter? Twitter, oh, I, I would love to would love to be a Twitter optimist. I think it's <laughs> it's an unbelievable tool. Um, for me, it feels like you know taking a sip from a fire hose in terms of real time information, uh, the ability to learn and connect with other smart people. I mean, I think the likelihood that you and I would have ever connected on on, on Facebook is is very small. So I think Twitter is an unbelievable tool, but they seem to have. Uh, a difficult time turning that into a very valuable uh, or, or in, a company that's increasing in value. And and it's funny, you know, you talk about Twitter and they always say, well, the user growth has stalled out. Maybe Twitter isn't meant for everybody. Um, I think maybe Twitter is more of a niche tool. Maybe it's a, a tool for a, a different um, type of person who's who's addicted to real-time information and uh, addicted to to uh, learning about all the, the latest things that are going on. And I don't mean in terms of pop culture. I, I mean in, in terms of whatever vertical interests you, whether that's uh, gossip or technology or investing or whatever it might be. Um, but they do seem to have a, a hard time turning that into uh, to increasing dollars. I agree with you. It's a niche tool, and at least... Uh, relative to Facebook, it's a niche company. Twitter today worth thirteen billion. Facebook worth four hundred forty-seven billion. So <laughs> it's not even close. But um, I, I certainly do use Twitter a lot more than than Facebook. Perhaps you do too. Zach Canner, thank you so much for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. I'd love to have you back in future. Anytime you have something interesting that you're thinking about or want to talk about, we'd love to have you back. Would love to be back. Thanks so so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Next week. Well, I'm not really sure what we're going to do next week. I have three different ideas. I guess we'll just see what happens. You can check out past episodes of Rule Breakers and all the Motley Fool's podcasts at our podcast center. Just go to podcasts.fool.com. I have to tell you, I listen to pretty much all of our podcasts, but I want to put in a special plug for my friends at Industry Focus. They did a really enjoyable episode. The date is May 29, 2017. If you want to download that and listen to it, you're going to hear all five of our different analysts internally come together for one show. I like to call it the Marvel Avengers version. It's the first time they've done it. I had a great time, laughed out loud, several points hearing from my friends over at Industry Focus. I think you'll enjoy that. So, podcast.fool.com. And of course, while you're there, you can check out our flagship service. That's Motley Fool Stock Advisor. A new issue of Stock Advisor comes out the third Friday of the month with two new stock recommendations from me and my brother, Tom Gardner. So, check all that out, podcasts.fool.com. All right, well, to the future. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.